Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk, we ask, where do ideas come from? On the panel are the writers Lisa Apignanesi and Andrew Robinson, and the academics Dame Gillian Beer and Professor Rosamund McKitterick. They will explore how science sparks ideas in literature, the relationship between hard graft and inspiration in creative breakthroughs, how past ideas are reformulated in the present, and how censorship affects creativity. Dame Gillian Beer. I wanted particularly to think about where new ideas come from. And there tend to be two ways of thinking about this, and I want to suggest some other ways as well. That um, there's one theory of the emergence of new ideas, which is exactly that. It's a, a gradual accretion. It's a communal process. It's what Virginia Woolf called the body of the people. That out of that interaction, out of that slow accretion, will eventually emerge unexpectedly new ways of thinking. The sort of thing that Woolf was particularly interested in was where does the style of the past go? Why don't we write like Carlyle anymore? Or even why don't we like, write like Ian <coughs> Forster? It's as though styles also have their historical period. So there's that idea of new ideas emerging um, and coming slowly forth. But there's a, also a rather stronger, more fierce idea of them being a form of rupture in which everything is rethought and nothing is ever the same again. But of course, there's another way of ideas appearing, which is through baths, long walks, sleep, inattention. And this is one of the most cheering versions of the emergence, I think, that we can all enjoy. Um, the one problem about that is that you can't rely on it, and you can't foresee it. It tends, just as William James put it once, of a different thing, uh, a different verbal thing, to saunter into your head at an angle, askance, not what you were looking for. And I've been working a lot in the last year particularly, but for some years before, on the way Darwin's creativity has grown. And one of the things that I noticed when I was reading his early notebooks was that he thought that reading Thomas Malthus made a tremendous difference to him, that it was really the trigger, if you like, that old word, the eureka moment. In fact, when you read the notebooks, you realise... There are entries from nine months before, six months before, where these ideas are there, but he hasn't noticed them. And that process in which it takes us a long time to get something from the corner of our eye into full vision is something that fascinates me very much. How it is that we actually... Well, we've all had that experience in a rather more exasperating form where you think, ah! I've got it now. And you go back and you find that you wrote it down four years ago. <laughs> You'd forgotten it. But it actually is now different again. So that process of, as I call it, inattention, seemed to me very important for ideas coming into their own. And inattention and then the moment when you do come to attention 
and you see there the idea is lying ready for the picking, so it seems. Inevitably, having new ideas means that you're crossing the assumptions of the society you're in. And it's much easier to correct our opinions than our assumptions, because our opinions lie much closer to the surface of what we think. Assumptions are exactly those things that we can't survey, because they're so deep embedded in all the things that make us who we are, where we live, what our whole surroundings, intellectual, emotional, familial, are. And we share those with people. And withdrawing from the sweet bed of assumptions is something quite hard to do very often. But you have to do it for a new idea to emerge. And you can turn them into opinions. Once you've turned them into opinions, they can be debated, attacked, rethought. So I think that's another thing that happens with the making of ideas. And it happens as much in literature as it happens in science, that very often literature is a way of thinking about the current assumptions of a society. Because of course there's this odd thing that we're none of us born naked, thank God. We may have naked bodies, but we don't have naked beings. Because we're born into a historical period, there's not time in the single human life to learn everything you need to learn to be alive. You've got to have the wheel, you've got to have fire, you've got to have a computer now. And those things are what define what we can think and as well as what we can think with. So we have to acknowledge that we're never quite as individual as we imagine, that we're at the mercy of those circumstances that surround us. That, I think, is one of the things that's important, and yet common sense, which presents itself as timeless and coherent, is, of course, the most culture-bound and the most time-bound of all things that go on around us. Everybody says, oh, it's just common sense, by which they mean it's what we take for granted, it's assumptions, it's what we think in this particular little part of the world, in this particular moment of history. And again, new ideas jostle common sense. They often seem like a kind of fiction when they first appear, because they don't fit with the way the world is construed. So that's another thing that happens with this idea, which isn't just of emergence, I think. That sounds too seamless, too ready, too easy. It is rather this process of jarring and jostling that sets in. So, I mean, the, the fashionable word for that, of course, is counterfactuals, that you think of possible worlds, you think of ways of imagining the world which are not like your own world. And that's what babies do all the time. I'm told. I've been reading this wonderful book by Alison Gopnik called The Philosophical Baby, which I strongly recommend if you haven't read it. And what she points out is that babies are having new ideas all day long. Um, instead of lying there inert, as occasionally people imagine, if they don't get very close to them. But then there is this other way of thinking about new ideas, and that is the idea of rupture, the new paradigm, the paradigm shift which makes everything that's been passed irrelevant. And there is some truth, of course, in that, that there are dramatic moments when things shift. There are unique moments for individuals. But, of course, the problem there is reception, because ideas don't really exist fully until they're received. 
And people don't all suddenly change their minds and believe the new idea. It takes a very long time, and there are a good many people where they never are going to be persuaded. They're recalcitrant. Indeed, I think death changes a good many more minds than does persuasion. So you usually have to wait for the next generation before this wonderful paradigm shift has actually taken place. It's making its way through one generation, but it's not quite there. And of course, one of the strangest of phenomena is that ideas that are exceedingly difficult when first generated, relativity theory, even the theory of evolution would be another example, Proust, ways of going about writing, Joyce, that they become easy in 50 years. They're taught in schools. Why is this? What is the process by which ideas change from being peculiarly difficult to know only to about four people in the universe to being something that you start learning when you're 10 or 11 and take for granted, so they're part of your assumptions. I find that in itself quite a problematic and intriguing process to understand. And, have I got time to say one more thing? Of course. Um, what's the place then of language in all this that I've been describing, these processes by which ideas emerge from being peripheral to being central, how also do we come to recognise our own ideas? That's what I've been emphasising. Again, there is a sort of anomaly, isn't there? Because language is communal, it's historical, it's what we share in common. So it doesn't, on the face of it, lend itself immediately to the newness of ideas. But language is full of all sorts of lateral ways of um, reimagining itself. Metaphors, for instance, obviously, analogies. You can reach new ideas crabwise by putting alongside each other things that have not previously been thought of together. Or you can even, as in metaphor, merge them for a while. They never merge for long because my love is like a red ro rose. Well, that's a simile, not a metaphor. But it's clear that your love is not a red, red rose, at least not most of the time. She's or he's a person. But this conjunction, this making of analogy and disanalogy, things that alert you to, oh, those things are alike, those things are not alike, those things are intrinsic, and yet those things may also be troubled and this is the way language goes at it. Um, and very often what's most important is to take a familiar metaphor and to turn it, turn it over, turn it sideways. That's what Darwin did with his idea of the great family, because the great family had been a kind of heraldic, aristocratic self-praise. You know, the great family is very exclusive. So what he shows is that the great family is totally inclusive. When he talks about the great family, he's talking about every organic form, past and present, and unimaginably past, all interlocked over time and in relationships. Now that seems to me a wonderful example of how you take a metaphor, everybody recognizes it, and you tell them something new about it, and that carries the freight of the newness of your idea. So I think that in order to think new thoughts and to communicate them without which newness is useless, 
The familia is important, indeed it is fundamental, but it's a familia that's going to be estranged, disturbed, and remade in the light of the newness of this idea. To me then, the idea that there is simply emergence or simply rupture won't work. We have to look at all those delicate negotiations that go on between what has been known and what is coming to be known if we're to understand how new ideas emerge. Thank you very much. So we move on to our next speaker, Rosamond Fischerick. All yours, Rosamond. Thank you. I, as an historian, am primarily concerned with the ideas of the past, and. For me, the ideas of the past are a matter of communication between human beings, but with the extra dimension of time added to that. And with many of the ideas, certainly when we're looking at history of past peoples, we're also dealing with the spread and communication of ideas across space as well. So I thought I'd give you an example of how ideas about the past could be formed and communicated, and within that, how we might be able to identify the respective roles of memory, which is a very crucial part of ideas of the past, and also existing precedents for historical writing. Because as Gillian has said, nobody really starts out to think or memorise once you start then actually thinking about how you communicate the past without thinking about how there might be ways of doing it which you could then develop. So I'm going to use comments made by a 10th century historian writing in northern France whose name was Flodoard. And he wrote, first of all, in his Annals, begun in about 920. And here he casually mentions, as part of a story really about something else, the Gate of Mars in the city of Reims, or Reims, to make it serve as a reference point to locate the nearby church of St. Hilary, where a blind man had miraculously had his sight restored. And in Flodoard's history of Reims, he doesn't say anything more, he just says that's where the church was in relation to the Gate of Mars. But in another book he wrote, The History of Reims, written 30 years later, the gate assumes much greater significance. In this text, he traces the history of the city and of the Sea of Reims, because it was in the Episcopate, from Sixtus, the first bishop, allegedly sent by no lesser person than St. Peter, to northern Gaul. And he augments the antiquity of the city and its secular Roman associations by discussing the city's foundation. So you're sitting in 10th century Reims, wondering about how old your town is and how you can demonstrate how old it is. And he rejects what he calls the vulgata opinio, the common, common view, that the city had been founded by Remus, brother of Romulus, as unlikely, we would know for obvious reasons, and drew on his knowledge of Livy, a written Roman text, Aburbe Condita, from the founding of the city of Rome, to support his view. But he went on to say that the ancient Roman foundations of the city were clearly attested by the Roman triumphal arch of the Gate of Mars in Reims. 
Now, this is the Porte de Mars in the present-day Place de la République in, to the east of the cathedral, and it was such a major um, aspect of the city's landscape and suggested, said Flodoard, that Reims might have been founded perhaps by members of Remus's military retinue. So he's using the word and extrapolating. The Porte de Mars in Reims happened to be the largest triumphal arch in the whole of the Roman Empire, and it was built circa 200 AD, so Flodoard's chronology is a little bit out. Nevertheless, his remark in relation to the theme of the invention of the past and uses of memory is important. For what he is actually rejecting an alleged memory by people within the city in favour of an ancient written text and what he can extrapolate from that. He then uses a local monument, a physical reminder and another set of memories about who had built it to confirm the antiquity of the city itself. So here what we've got is a Roman monument serving its classic purpose as an object intended to recall a person or an event. As a consequence, the gate of Mars in Reims then plays a role subsequently as a point not only in the reference of Flodoard's history, but as a point of reference for the whole sense of the city and its identity with this ancient Roman past. Now, Flodoard also writes a history which he chooses to write according to a particular convention then available to him, which is known, if you're interested, as Gesta Episcoporum. But what he's doing is creating a very particular memory of the Church of Reims for his audience. And in Flodoard's text, then, the Gate of Mars becomes an embodiment of that citizen's memory of the city's Roman past and it becomes an essential element, again, of the city's identity. So Reims itself is becoming a lieu de mémoire in the sense defined by Pierre Nora. Now, Flodoard's narrative subsequently played a crucial role in the construction of the city's identity of Reims and its citizens in subsequent centuries. And the Porte de Mars, therefore, still remains the centre with the prominence that Flodoard had first really created for it. So what his work is doing for us is offering us a manifestation of the way in which different objects, different texts and different uses of memory can reflect elements of a people's identity and the way he combines an existing history with the Roman author Livy in order to make a merging of memories but creates a new version of the past. So what we then have is a progression which we can construct and reconstruct by a process of communicating with Flodoard and things that he has read in order to get this notion. Now, any historian then has to bear in mind not only the ways in which humans actually remember things as a cognitive process, but also how memory and recollection can distort, select and shift over time, and also the way in which memory is actually recorded and history is written because all these play a role in the way we understand our past, receive our past, and interpret it. And it's as, a, as true of our own contemporary world and the weight that might or might not be given to reports of eyewitnesses as it is of any period in the past. As historians, of course, memory of the past is something we confront all the time in our sources, but memories can be very personal and collective, they can be shaped, they can be manipulated. And historians who study particular memories to construct a past 
and to reinforce an identity in one way or another, always have to consider then the problems of evidence and the way in which ideas have been communicated apart the past, partly through written texts, partly through commemorative monuments, partly as narratives, partly in the form of ostensibly selective and deliberately constructed records. So any historian, and in fact any human being, is constantly confronting the <coughs> creation of ideas which actually are an amalgamation of a number of different ones, which nevertheless communicate something very strong to the next generations. Thank you very much. I turn now to my left and ask Andrew Robinson to address us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start with an anecdote um, at the risk of being thought unacademic. Um, it's about Linus Pauling, who was one of the most admired scientists of the last century, who, who won two Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry and one in peace. Uh, and he was asked by one of his graduate students, um, actually before Pauling had won the prizes, Dr. Pauling, um, how do you have so many good ideas? And Pauling paused for a moment and said, well, David, I have a lot of ideas and throw away the bad ones. <laughs> now, this is obviously uh, begs a lot of questions. Um, you know, where do ideas come from in the first place? But why do so many uh, people have uh, good ones and others not? Um, how do you distinguish good ideas from, from the bad? Most intriguing of all, I think, and this is what I've been writing about in my book, is, is why do ideas uh, often seem to come uh, in a flash, uh, the flash of inspiration, um, unexpectedly? Now, I'm aware that what I'm about to say specialists will disagree with, but there are many uh, stories of Eureka's, and I think it's a good idea if we if we just review a few of those. Archimedes, Archetypally, is, is the first one. Um, uh, he, I don't need to tell you, discovered the principles of uh, flotation and displacement in his bath and jumped out of it and cried, Eureka, or so we're told. Uh, Gutenberg, it's said, uh, discovered the, the printing press um, by observing a wine press uh, while casually looking at the grape harvest in Germany in the 15th century. Again, the evidence is pretty poor, but that's the story. And Newton and the apple, everyone knows, in the uh, 17th century. Um, you have Coleridge uh, with his poem, uh, Kubla Khan, uh, supposedly uh, came to him in an opium-induced dream. Um, the evidence is, again, poor, but um, that's the story. You have Mendeleev, who invented uh, the periodic table, um, Supposedly, while uh, sitting and reflecting uh, on a chemistry textbook, he was writing and having a dream and waking up and seeing the order and writing it down, the order of the elements. Um, and if you want a modern example, I think Fleming and penicillin is, is a good one, uh, an accidental discovery, uh, which I suppose is again archetypal. He was uh, culturing... Um, uh, Staphylococcus bacteria in a petri dish, and um, this is about uh, I think 19, early 1920s, and he's discovered quite by accident the the um, the bacterium that uh, the killing mold that uh, became later penicillin. 
um, the first antibiotic. Now, I have written uh, in my book about Cartier-Bresson and a number of other figures who also had, in modern times, what I would call uh, eureka moments. Um, Cartier-Bresson, the photographer, was uh, uh, stumbled upon a photograph in Paris in 1932 uh, of three African boys uh, running towards Lake Tanganyika, and uh, this inspired him uh, to take up photography with his Leica. He was already a casual photographer, but uh, this was the moment that he himself recognized as the beginning of his career. And it's worth actually quoting what he said, I think. Um, I suddenly understood that photography can fix eternity in a moment. It's the only photo that influenced me. Uh, it was actually by a sports photographer, this uh, photograph. Um, and he says, I felt it like a kick up the backside. Go on, have a go, be a photographer. Uh, the filmmaker, the Indian filmmaker Satyajit Ray, I've written a biography of him. He had a somewhat similar experience in London uh, in 1950 while watching um, Bicycle Thieves, the Italian film, which was then a brand new film, uh, just won the Oscar, in fact, uh, as a foreign language uh, film. And Ray went to see it uh, as an um, Indian arrived from Calcutta, and he he said, the whole experience of seeing this film gored me. Um, and, and sitting there, in fact, he visualized after the screening, he, he immediately visualized how he would make his first Indian film, uh, Pata Panchali, the first of the Apu trilogy, as a result of this uh, epiphany uh, in front of the film Bicycle Thieves. And then you have a Cambridge example, I think James Watson and the Double Helix, although he doesn't use the word uh, Eureka in, in the book, um, the famous moment in, I think, February 1952, when he, 53, when he uh, managed to fit the two halves of, uh, the two uh, molecules of DNA together and, and, and see the replication process for himself. Um, that was something he said, uh, his, I think he says his morale uh, skyrocketed. So I would say that was uh, a, a version of a Eureka experience. <coughs> Now, the evidence, as I said, is, is not very good for some of these early examples. Uh, Archimedes is just hearsay. Uh, Gutenberg, there seems to be a letter which Arthur Kerstler is quite keen on in his book on creation, but I don't think it's very well sourced. Uh, but it's a lovely story. Um, Newton, well, uh, you probably know that he never wrote it down, but he did speak to uh, people in old age about it. So I think we have some reason to trust it. Um, I think there are three or four references uh, to his uh, speaking about it. Um, anyway, I, I think Eureka's, though, one has to treat them with some suspicion, uh, do chime with our, our own experiences in many ways that um, uh, Gillian Beer has been mentioning. Uh, it, you do realize that you can have ideas from chance associations, casual conversations, leaps of imagination, and even dreams, irrational inputs of that kind, uh, in your own experience. Uh, I've got a rather nice example from A.E. Hausman, which I think is worth uh, telling you about. Um, I'm sure some people would know it, but it's his lectures, uh, The Name and Nature of Poetry, and he describes how he drank uh, some beer at lunch. And then I would go out for a walk, he says, of two or three hours, as I went along thinking of nothing in particular, 
only looking at things around me and following the progress of the seasons, there would flow into my mind with sudden and unaccountable emotion, sometimes a line or two of verse, sometimes a whole stanza at once, accompanied, not preceded by a vague notion of the poem they were destined to be part of. Then I would usually have a lull of an hour or two and perhaps the spring would bubble up again. Now obviously Eurekas are not the whole story of how ideas come to us. Um, they may appear to come out of the blue but um, I think in my experience of studying uh, 10 or more great uh, artists and scientists for my book I, I realise that in every case deep immersion in the work uh, has, has been the prelude to the Eureka. Um, Fleming, actually, for example, was working for, for many years in the bacteriology department of a, a London hospital. In fact, I think two decades of work went into the discovery of the penicillin mould in 1928. I see that's the date. Uh, and he became interested in trying to find uh, antibiotics as a result of his work in the First World War trying to uh, treat sepsis in, in wounds. Uh, and he is actually a good example, I would say, of Pasteur's famous dictum that um, where observation is concerned, chance uh, favours only the prepared mind. Mm -hmm. Fleming's a good, good example, and many others too. It's obvious that original ideas can arise from concentrated work uh, on one subject, but they can also arise from unrelated uh, activities. And I think that perspiration and inspiration are inseparable twins. And I, I would like to just conclude by quoting a couple of American composers who took um, opposite points of view on this. Uh, Elliot Carter, um, who's still alive, I think, said, uh, at the age of 100 or so, he says, is, if there is inspiration, it's not something that comes at the beginning of the piece. It comes in the course of writing it. Whereas Aaron Copeland is on record as saying, um, you can't pick the moment when you're going to have ideas. It picks you, and then you might be completely absorbed in another piece of work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lisa Opinionese. Thank you. I don't think I've got a single new idea left now. <laughs> so many of them have come, come this way. I mean, it's quite clear that ideas come from anywhere and everywhere. Um, they come from inattention, they come from observation, they come from experience. They come um, from life, from memory, and uh, they also come from reading. And, and that's something I want to uh, get to a little later, because I think if we are to get ideas from reading as one of the places we get them from, then it's important that ideas can circulate and books can circulate and things come to us from the past and move around geographically. And um, hence my work with Penn. But let me talk a little mm -hmm. bit personally first. And we haven't talked about um, uh, fiction particularly. And, and I think it's, it's a very interesting process because one doesn't necessarily think of ideas and novels as being the same thing. And yet quite often novelists will say, I've had an idea 
for a novel. I've had an idea for a book. And, and um, where do these ideas come from? Well, Henry James talked about the germ of an idea. And again, it could come from anywhere. It could come from a conversation overheard at a dinner party. It could come from a newspaper story, as famously Madame Bovary has meant to have come from, come from an image of a man walking along a street or a beach, um, or from an incident in one's own life. Salman Rushdie once said to me that ideas are cheap. You, know, you get a hundred every day. And the important thing for actually making something out of it, and this may fall into your perspiration, is that the idea actually clings to you. And there's a kind of mm. accretion around it, as, as if the germ, the seed, had gone into fall, uh, ground that, that made it germinate. And it took on sticky things so that um, the, the original uh, idea, if you like, had a cluster growing around it and took on density, spawned affinities. Um, in short, it germinated. And I, I, I was trying to think about this in my own case. You know, famously, uh, particularly fiction writers will tell you about ideas after the fact of having had them, and therefore will invent them in, in the same way that memory works. I mean, you will attribute causes or origins um, as so many of your people, I think, have mm -hmm. when they talk about eureka moments, um, in order to make a good story, so that you actually have a story about yes. ideas as well. Um, and I was trying to think about this in, 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 in respect to my uh, last novel, which was called The Memory Man. And I do vaguely remember that the reason I decided I wanted to write something more in this area is because I'd written a book about memory in a way before, uh, which was a family memoir about how memory works through families and how things are both um, uh, misshaped and, and mistaken and lies come into play through this very work of memory. Um, and I was still very interested in the subject, so I thought, well, what shall I do? Um, I thought, I know, I'll go and get ideas from a scientist. And so I went to science stalking to see how uh, people from a very, very different, um, if you like, uh, sense of ideas, how they come um, to think about memory and where their ideas of memory come from. So I stalked these memory scientists and learned a great deal. Um, and then I still didn't know how to write this book because, of course, I was dealing with two very different kinds of ideas that, of memory. Uh, the memory that actually comes from life, uh, the kind of Proustian complexity of memory, which um, is both unconscious and conscious and historical and totally ahistorical, and the scientific ideas about learning and forgetting um, and proteins and plaques <laughs> because these people were also working about on Alzheimer's and how things are forgotten. Um, and all this came together with my mother who had Alzheimer's. And the, the, the novel then took shape and I don't know what the final idea was that made it come into being in that way, was that somehow I would use a neuroscientist, a person who thought about memory in very rational, experimental ways, um, and take him through life and see whether the kind of memories that he accrued in life and remember how he remembered in life actually bore any relationship to what his science is about. So in fact, I was working with a way in which knowledge can also occlude truth and uh, stop one from having new ideas, stop one from actually experiencing. So often the ideas actually come through writing, just as for painters when they talk to you uh, 
deeply will say, actually, the idea for this work came from the process of applying paint. Um, so, as I think one of you said, Gillian said, language comes into it and the way you play um, with language. And that will actually give birth to the ideas. And after the fact, you'll say, I actually got the idea from this little old lady sitting in a room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that's how um, it came into being. We all think that we've now arrived at this great time where, in fact, there, we have our human rights enshrined in various charters and freedom of expression is enshrined in for example, the Universal Charter of Human Rights, where it makes up art, Article 19. And Article 19 says, in part, the freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media, regardless of frontiers. And this is a fundamental right, and we think we have it, because we've signed all these charters, both as a, a state and indeed all the European states have. And yet, continuously we're confronted by the fact that ideas aren't allowed to circulate freely if they offend people, if they're politically incorrect, if governments like our own uh, decide to put in idea, uh, laws which will legislate against um, incitement to, for example, religious hatred, um, a piece of legislation which could have affected all satirists in this country, and indeed a great many writers, including Salman Rushdie, who I mentioned earlier. In America, you see how Darwin's ideas are not allowed to circulate freely. Creationists, um, the intelligent design people, would actually say that these should not be taught in schools, and so there is that kind of censorship working there. And of course, various religious groups will tell you here that certain ideas are not the kinds that can be taught in schools, and indeed should not take part of our public discourse because they are offensive. I'm sorry, I've, I've done too much too quickly, but... Um, Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Um, we've had a lot of ideas about ideas, lots of metaphors about uh, where they come from, how they get born, exploding like Athena out of Zeus's head, or sauntering in. I love that one that Gillian uh, quoted from Henry James, or germinating. We've also had a lot of thought about where uh, ideas go to and how they get used, which I think has been extremely interesting too. So I'd like to thank all our panellists for uh, a splendid session. Thank you.